Chapter Twenty One A of Football Days. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mary Rohde. Football Days by William Edwards. Chapter Twenty One A Crash of Conflict. Part A. The start of a football game is most exciting not alone for the players but for the spectators as well every one is keyed up in anticipation of the contest the referee's whistle blows the ball is kicked off the game has begun opponents now meet face to face on the field of battle what happens on the gridiron is plainly seen by the spectators but it is not possible for them to hear the conversations which take place there is much good-natured joshing between the players, which brings out the humorous as well as the serious side of the contest. In a game, and during the hard days of practice, many remarks are made which, if overheard, would give the spectators an insight into the personal, human side of the sport. It behooves every team to make the most of the first five minutes of play, every coach in the country will tell his team to get the charge on their opponents from the start a good start usually means a good ending from the sidelines we see the men put their shoulders to their work charging and pushing their opponents aside to make a hole in the line through which the man with the ball may gain his distance or we may see a man on the defensive full of grim determination to meet the oncoming charges of his opponent. As we glance at the accompanying picture of a Yale-West Point game, we will observe the earnest effort that is being made in the great game of football, the crash of conflict. One particularly amusing story is told about a former Lehigh player in a Princeton game several years ago. After the match had been in progress twenty minutes or more, says a princeton man who played we began to show a large number of bruises on our faces this was especially the case with house janeway whose opponent at tackle was a big husky lehigh player janeway finally became suspicious of the big husky whose arms often struck him during the scrimmage what have you got on your arm shouted janeway at his adversary never you mind i'm playing my game was the big tackle's retort. Janeway insisted that the game be stopped temporarily for an inspection. The Lehigh tackle demurred. Hector Cowan, whose face had suffered, backed up Janeway's demand. "'Have you anything on your arm?' demanded the referee of the Lehigh player. "'My sleeve,' was the curt reply. "'Well, turn up your sleeve, then.' The big tackle was forced to comply with the official's request, and disclosed a silver bracelet. "'Either take that off or go out of the game,' was the referee's orders. "'But I promised a girlfriend that I would wear it through the match,' protested Lehigh's tackle. "'I can't take it off. Don't you understand? It was wished on.' "'Well, I wish it off,' the referee replied. "'This is no society affair.' The big tackle objected to this, declaring he would sooner quit the game than be disloyal to the girl. "'Then you will quit,' was the command of the umpire, and the big tackle left the field, a substitute taking his place. 
Luter, a Cornell tackle, one of the best in his day, mentions a personal affair that occurred in the pen game in 1900 between Blondie Wallace and himself. Blondie's friends, when they read this, will think he had an off day in his general football courtesy. Luter states, When I was trying to take advantage of my opponent, I was outwitted and was told to play on the square. I took Wallace's advice and never played a nicer game of football in my life. Just this little reprimand from an older player taught me a lot of football. In the Yale-Brown game back in 1898, Richardson, the wonderful Brown quarterback, received the ball on a double pass from Dave Fultz and ran 65 yards before he was downed by Charlie DeSalles, the Yale quarterback, on Yale's five-yard line. When Richardson got up, he turned to DeSalles and said, "'You fool! Why did you tackle me? I lost a chance to be a hero!' Yale, by the way, won that game by a score of 18-14. to 14. Yost relates a humorous experience he had at Michigan in 1901, which was his most successful season at that university. Buffalo University came to Michigan with a much-heralded team. They were coached by a Dartmouth man and had not been scored upon. Buffalo papers referred to Michigan as the Woolly Westerners, and the Buffalo enthusiasts placed bets that Michigan would not score. The time regulation of the game, two halves, was thirty-five minutes without intermission. At the end of the first half, the score was sixty-five to zero. During this time, many substitutions had been made, some nineteen or twenty men, so that every player Buffalo brought with them had at one time or another participated in the game. The Buffalo coach came to me and said, Yost, we will have to cut this next half short. Why? I asked. Of course, he did not realize that every available man he had with him was used up, but I felt rather liberal at that stage of the game and said, Let them rest fifteen or twenty minutes for the intermission, and then use them over again. Use them as often as you like. I don't care. About fifteen minutes after the second half had started, I discovered on Michigan's side of the field, covered up in a blanket, a big fellow named Simpson, one of the Buffalo players. I was naturally curious, and said, "'Simpson, what are you doing over here? You're on the wrong side.' "'Don't say anything,' came the quick response. "'I know where I'm at. The coach has put me in three times already, and I'm not going in there again.' Enough is enough for any one. I've had mine. The score was then a hundred and twenty to zero in favor of Michigan, and the Buffalo team quit fifteen minutes before the game should have ended. It may be interesting to note that from this experience of Buffalo with Michigan, the expression, I've got you buffaloed, is said to have originated, and today Michigan players use it as a fighting word. Yost smiled triumphantly as he related the following. The day we played the Michigan Agricultural College, we, of course, were at our best. The MAC was taken on as a preliminary game, which was to be two twenty-minute halves. At the beginning of the second half, the score was 118-0 to zero in favor of Michigan. 
At this time a big husky tackle, after a very severe scrimmage had taken place, stood up, took off his headgear, threw it across the field, and started for the sideline, passing near where I was standing, when I yelled at him, "'The game is not over yet. Go back!' "'Oh,' he said, "'we came down here to get some experience. I've had all I want. Let the other fellows stay if they want to. Me for the dressing-room.' And when this fellow quit, all the other MAC players stopped, and the game ended right there. There were but four minutes left to play. Somebody circulated a rumor that Yost had made the statement that Michigan would beat Iowa one year eighty to zero. Of course, this rumor came out in the papers on the day of the game, but Yost says, I never really said any such thing. However, we did beat them a hundred and seven to zero, whereupon some fellow from Iowa sent me a telegram after the game, which read, Ain't it awful? Box their remains and send them home. In Tom Shevlin's year at Yale, 1902, Mike Sweeney, his old trainer and coach at Hill School, was in New Haven watching practice for about four days before the first game. Practice that day was a sort of survival of the fittest, for they were weeding out the backs who were doing the catching. About five backs were knocked out. A couple had been carried off with twisted knees, and still the coaches were trying for more speed and diving tackles. Tom had just obliterated a 150-pound halfback, who had lost the ball, the use of his legs, and his varsity aspirations altogether. Stopped by Sweeney on his way back up the field, Tom remarked, Mike, this isn't football, it's war. A brown man tells the following interesting story. In a game that we were playing with some small college back in 1906 out on Andrews Field, Brown had been continually hammering one tackle for big gains. The ball was in the middle of the field, and time had been taken out for some reason or other. Huggins and Robbie were standing on the sidelines, and just as play was about to be resumed, Robbie noticed that the end on the opposing team was playing out about fifteen feet from his tackle and was standing near us, when Robbie said to him, "'What's the idea? Why don't you get in there where you belong?' The end's reply was, "'I'm wise. Do you think I'm a fool? I don't want to be killed.' During a scrub game, the year that Brown had the team that trimmed Yale 21-0, Huggins says, Goldberg, a big guard who at that time was playing on the second eleven, kept holding Brent Smith's foot. Brent was a tackle, one of the best, by the way, that we ever had here at Brown. Smith complained to the coaches, who told him not to bother, but to get back into the game and play football. This he did, but before he settled down to business, he said to Goldberg, If you hold my foot again, I'll kick you in the face. About two plays had been run off when Smith once more shouted, He's holding me! Robbie went in back of him and said, Why didn't you kick him? Kick him, replied Brent. He held both my feet. Hardwick recalls another incident that has its share of humor, which occurred in the Yale Bowl on the day of its christening. 
Yale was far behind, some thirty points, playing rather raggedly. They had possession of the ball on Harvard's one-yard line and were attempting a strong rushing attack in anticipation of a touchdown. They were meeting with little or no success in penetrating Pencock and Trumbull, backed by Bradley, and on the third down they were one yard farther away from the goal than at the start. They attempted another plunge on tackle, and were using that uncertain form of offense, the direct pass. The center was a trifle mixed and passed to the wrong man, with the result that Yale recovered the ball on Harvard's twenty-five-yard line. Wilson, then a quarter for Yale, turned to his center and asked him sharply, "'Why don't you keep track of the signals?' In a flash the center rush turned and replied, "'How do you expect me to keep track of signals when I can hardly keep track of the touchdowns?' Brown University was playing the Carlisle Indians some ten years ago at the Polo Grounds at New York City. Bemis Pierce, the Indian captain, called time, just as a play was about to be run off, and the Brown team continued in line, while Hawley Pierce, his brother, a tackle on the Indian team, complained, in an audible voice, that someone on the Brown team had been slugging him. Bemis walked over to the Brown line with his brother, saying to him, Pick out the man who did it. Hawley Pierce looked the Brunonians over, but could not decide which player had been guilty of the rough work. By this time, the two minutes were up, and the officials ordered play resumed. Bemis shouted to Hawley, Now keep your eyes open and find out who it was. Show him to me, and after the game I'll take care of him properly. It is interesting to note that Bemis only weighed 230 pounds, and his little brother tipped the scale at 210 pounds. In 1900, Brown played the University of Chicago at Chicago. During the second half, Bates, the Brown captain, was injured and was taken from the game, and Sheehan, a big tackle, was made temporary captain. At that time, the score was 6-6. Six to six. Sheehan called the team together and addressed them in this manner. Look here, boys. We've got thirteen minutes to play. Get in and play like hell. Every one of you make a touchdown. We can't beat him with ease. For many years, the last statement was one of Brown's battle cries. Brown, by the way, won that game by a score of twelve to six. A former Brown man says that in a Harvard game some few years ago, Brown had been steadily plowing through the Crimson's left guard. Goldberg, of the Brown team, had been opening up big holes, and Jake High, Brown's fullback, had been going through for eight and ten yards at a time. Goldberg, who was a big, stout fellow, not only was taking care of the Harvard guard, but was going through and making an endeavor to clean up the secondary defense. High, occasionally, when he had the ball, instead of looking where he was going, would run blindly into Goldberg, and the play would stop dead. Finally, after one of these experiences, Jay cried out, Goldberg, if you would only keep out of my way, I would make the All-American. In the same game, High, on a line plunge, got through, dodged the secondary defense, and was finally brought down by Howard's backfield man, O'Flaherty. Jake always ran with his mouth wide open, 
and O'Flaherty, who made a high tackle, was unfortunate enough to stick his finger in High's mouth. He let out a yell as Jake came down on it. "'What are you biting my finger for?' High as quickly responded. "'What are you sticking it in my mouth for?' Huggins of Brown says, "'The year that we beat Pennsylvania so badly out on Andrews Field, Brown had the ball on Penn's two-yard line. Time was called for some reason, and we noticed that the backfield men were clustered about Crowther, our quarterback. We afterwards learned that all four of the backfield wanted to carry the ball over. Crowther reached down and plucked three blades of grass, and the half-backs and the full-back each drew one with the understanding that the one drawing the shortest blade could carry the ball. Much to their astonishment, they found that all pieces of grass were of the same length. Crowther, who made the All-American that year, shouted, "'You all lose! I'll take it myself!' And over the line he went, with the ball tucked away under his arm. "'Johnny Poe was behind the door when fear went by,' says Gary Cochran. "'Everyone knows of his wonderful courage.' I remembered that in the Harvard 96 game at Cambridge, near the end of the first half, two of our best men, Ad Kelly and Sport Armstrong, were seriously hurt, which disorganized the team. The men were desperate and near the breaking point. Johnny, with his true Princeton spirit, sent this message to each man on the team. If you won't be beat, you can't be beat. This message brought about a miracle. It put iron in each man's soul, and never from that moment did Harvard gain a yard, and for four succeeding years, if you won't be beat, you can't be beat, was Princeton's battle cry. The good that Johnny did for Princeton teams was never heralded abroad. His work was noiseless, but always to the point. I remember the Indian game in 96. The score in the first half was 6-0 to zero in favor of the Indians. I believe they had beaten Harvard and Penn and tied Yale. There wasn't a word said in the clubhouse when the team came off the field, but each man was digging in his locker for a special pair of shoes which we had prepared for Yale. Naturally, I was very bitter and refused to speak to anyone. Then I heard the quiet, confident voice talking to Johnny Baird, who had his locker next to mine. I can't remember all he said, but this is the gist of his conversation. Johnny, you're backing up the center. Why can't you make that line into a fighting unit? Tell them their grandfathers licked a hundred better Indians than these fellows are, and it's up to them to show they haven't backbred. Johnny Baird carried out these orders and the score, 22-6, to six, favoring Princeton, showed the result. Once more Johnny Poe's brains lifted Princeton out of a hole. I could mention many cases where Johnny has helped Princetonians, but they are personal and could not be published. I can only say that when I lost Johnny Poe, I lost one who can never be replaced and I feel like a traitor because I was not beside him when he fell. End of chapter 21A